Welcome to Eat, Drink, and Do Good, the monthly newsletter and now podcast from Studio Atau. I'm Jenny Dorsey, the studio's executive director. Every month, we bring you fresh op-eds from new and emerging writers from across the U.S., covering a variety of social justice topics that will encourage you to think a little more critically about the world around you. Each podcast episode features the writers themselves reading aloud their work, and we hope you'll learn as much from them as we did. Thank you for listening, and if you're enjoying this podcast, please also consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash studio that's studio A-T-A-O, or via one-time gift on our website at studiotau.org slash donate. I hope you love the op-ed today. The Seemingly Insurmountable Effects of Appearance by Bridget Kennedy The current health system in the United States relies heavily on the body mass index BMI scale. First introduced in the early 19th century as the Quetelet Index by Lambert Adolph Jacques Quetelet, the BMI scale was intended to be used for the study of population statistics and to outline the ideal body of the time, not for measuring human health or indicating appropriate body weight or obesity. Quetelet was an academic who studied astronomy, mathematics, statistics, and sociology, but notably not medicine, and his scale, later renamed to the Body Mass Index by researcher Ansel Keys in 1972, was developed using only the measurements of French and Scottish men. As a result, the BMI scale simply doesn't make sense when applied to demographics outside that initial narrow sample set. Fat, bone, and every other aspect of the human body is proportioned differently on every person, yet the scale does not account for how these different parts vary in density. Someone with strong bones, toned muscle, and low body fat could then be labeled as obese, for example, Many healthy athletes are classified as just that based on the BMI scale. Furthermore, this idea that the ideal body could be measured by a scale like BMI gave rise to racist and fatphobic medical practices that continues to this day. By the early 20th century, U.S. life insurance companies were compiling self-reported height and weight tables of their customers to determine what policyholders should pay. This, in turn, influenced physicians to similarly emphasize weight to determine health in their patients because excessive weight in these inaccurate insurance rating tables were seen to result in lower life expectancy. Although weight is only one symptom or factor to consider in a holistic analysis of health, Current prevailing assumptions that anyone categorized as overweight or obese is therefore unhealthy ends up derailing more productive conversations. Eating disorders, for example, are often dismissed when someone is at an appropriate weight on the BMI scale. People with underlying health issues that are medically classified as obese are often told that their problem would be solved if they simply lost weight. I know this from personal experience. 
I had a rare disease known as Takuchi Fukimoto's disease that caused all my lymph nodes to become inflamed after my gallbladder removal surgery. I only discovered this, however, after accruing thousands of ER bills because my first doctor refused to look past my fatness. Even after the medicine prescribed to me directly caused the failure of my organ, I was told that maybe I just needed to lose a couple of pounds. Appearance, unfortunately, has been shown to have a big impact on the quality of medical treatment a patient receives. Studies dating as far back as 1969 have found that more than 50% of physicians view obese patients as awkward, unattractive, and ugly. Doctors associate obesity with negative attributes in their patients, such as poor hygiene, hostility, and non-adherence to medical advice. This medical fat phobia, as Boston Medical Center defines and explains, contributes to individuals not receiving adequate health care because, one, the assumption that if someone is overweight by BMI standards, they cannot be healthy. Two, medical practitioners' lack of experience and education in treating diverse body sizes. And three, weight-related barriers such as the size of exam tables, gowns, blood pressure cuffs, and scale limits. PhD candidate and fat advocate Mikey Mercedes wrote in a past newsletter that nourishing under-resourced communities cannot be done in the spirit of paternalism or correction. When it comes to healthcare, if medical professionals are indoctrinated in their schooling that their fat patients simply could not make proper decisions for themselves and thus they should make these decisions unilaterally, it serves critical it severs critical trust in the patient-doctor relationship. Unfortunately, these ideas are constantly being enforced by social norms. Dr. Stuart W. Flint writes that the conscious and unconscious stigmatizing attitudes held by healthcare professionals is a reflection of exposure to consistent and widespread weight stigma and the lack of training and education for healthcare professionals about the complexity of PLWO, people living with obesity. Overcoming medical fat phobia will require the participation of fat people in the medical process and the centering of our voices. We ultimately know our bodies best. We know when we are not healthy. We know when we are. We absolutely should be involved in helping medical professionals for more educated decisions that are more inclusive of all our bodies. I firmly believe that health is about what your body can do for you and how you feel in it, not just how it looks. Instead of pushing the ideal body size, push the idea that individuals should be able to walk with ease. Push the idea of mental clarity because mental health is just as important as physical health. Push the idea of normal skin blemishes, of normal weight changes with puberty. Change the narrative so that healthiness is determined by the overall quality of someone's life. The BMI scale has been shown to be useful for screening for possible health risks, but it clearly should not be used alone. Weight is only one small part of our health, and it cannot continue to dominate the conversation within medical institutions the way it has for so long. Beyond a doctor's office, which is only one, not to mention the last step of the medical puzzle, we can find new ways to incorporate the needs and voices of fat people. 
For example, by taking care to include fat people in medical studies and drug trials and being size inclusive when it comes to medical instruments and equipment. When it comes to listening to fat patients like myself, I want to imagine a situation where my weight is not the most important part of the visit. I want to imagine a situation where I go into the doctor's office and don't feel shamed as soon as I step off the scale, shutting off any possibility of a productive dialogue with a professional who is meant to look out for my overall well-being. Ultimately, I want my doctors to see me, the person in front of them, not just a number on a scale. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find all prior issues of Eat, Drink, and Do Good on Studio Tao's website at studiotao.org newsletter. I'm Emily Chen, the head of content at the studio. Every month, we'll be releasing a new newsletter and podcast with social justice analyses from new and emerging writers. Make sure to sign up for our mailing list and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to be the first to know on all new episodes. All of our contributors are paid for their time and work, so if you're able, please consider supporting us as a monthly donor via Patreon or via a one-time gift at studiotao.org donate. Thank you for listening.